So, Michelle. So. We made a promise last week to finish up the story of Skripalov, but um, something came up. Yeah, I, I, I can't imagine what happened in that time. Like, there's something really small, really, really small. Tiny little geopolitical thing that happened in the world that reflects on the military and intelligence and all those things that we like to talk about. Um, yep. Just that little, a little corner of the world called Afghanistan. Oh, yes, Afghanistan. I forgot about that. I, I hadn't seen anything about it. No, there's been, look, the news has been very quiet about it at all. No, I haven't seen anything quiet. about people on planes and struggling no. to get into airports and stuff like that. So, look, I thought what a great idea we could do is we should really talk about it, just, just to let people who don't know that it's happened know that it's happened. And also, uh, we've got a guest. Oh my gosh. So people are getting a bonus episode. We're going to park episode two. Of We're going to park Scrip of. Yep. We're going to bring him back. Yep. It's okay. Yep. We've got, we, we know what's happened with him, but we don't know what happened behind it. So we'll no. do that next week. But right now, we're going to talk about it. We're going to bring back an old friend. An old friend. I love old friends. Yes. You ready, you ready to talk to an old friend? Let's talk to an old friend. Let's do it. You're listening to I Spied, the leftover military gear of Australian intelligence. Hey, Michelle, you want to buy a Humvee? It's How a much? nice one. It's really good. How much? I can put a stereo in it. How much? Oh, you know, 20 bucks. I'll take it. Hello and welcome to I Spied. I'm Michelle Stevenson. I'm here with David Callan. And look, we're still in lockdown, which yep. is... I, I just feel like it's just a never-ending lockdown. We're just going to live our lives. My I'm pretty much moved fort? into this bedroom. <laughs> My blanket fort. I've got a jacuzzi in here now. <laughs> Seriously, you want to hear it? <laughs> I, the the tense city that is what? that is going on what? in our lives is just incredible. I mean, right, I've swapped ten- I've swapped mine, but I. I I think it's really interesting that we get to uh, see a bit of people's lives. <laughs> Apparently, you you didn't like what was going on in my wardrobe, so I just shut the door. Thank um, you. <laughs> really? We You've do- got that many jackets? You don't I need know. that many jackets. Okay, you? I'm a female. Of course I do. Look, we are going to talk Afghanistan, and we were both pretty keen to kind of unpack this. As there's a yeah. lot to discuss, and I've got, I've got my opinions. But we also thought we'd bring in an old friend of the podcast who, yes. who's also coming at us from quarantine. He is. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, drumroll please, uh, welcome back to the podcast, uh, Mr. Neil Fergus. Neil, how are you up there in Brisbane? Very well, thanks Frosty Michelle. Um, all things considered, I've got five more days to go in this seemingly interminable lockdown, but it could be worse. So why are you in quarantine? Uh, because I went with the Australian Olympic team to Tokyo to manage their safety and security. And also he was uh, representing that. Australia for uh, the high jump and uh, <laughs> yeah. pentathlon. Yeah, we, we, we missed that. <laughs> Unfortunately, you didn't get a medal. But uh, how was that trip? Fantastic. Um, I think the team exceeded everybody's expectations, including their own. I think so too. And we brought back uh, an equal high amount of gold medals, but... More importantly, the whole team, I think, largely exceeded their personal best, their expectations after a year of having difficulties training, qualifying, um, you know, all of those things that COVID brings to the athletes, uh, I suppose, lifestyle. We'd like to talk about that some more, uh, but we're going to hold off on that because let's get down to the big issue that's been running around on everyone's news channel, which is Afghanistan. Yeah, and I guess um, the the big thing with Afghanistan is – for me, all of a sudden people are very surprised um, that it even happened. And there's been some kind – it's weird to me because there's been this 
everyone wanted this war to end and then all of a sudden people were like, oh, but we didn't want it to end like that. And I guess the big question is, mm. is there a good way to end a war? No, um, especially when you didn't win no. it and you spent, you know, trillions of dollars and billions with an arm, like getting an army up and running, even though, you know, a lot of the Afghans were not paid to be in the military. So, of course, they mm-hmm. handed their guns over to the Taliban when the Taliban came knocking on their door. So, I think that there's a really, there's a lot to unpack and what it means for security and stability for that region. Yeah, it's an extraordinary development. But the worst thing is it was largely foreseeable. Yes. And, um, To that extent, Michelle, you would have to say that this is, despite all the protestations emanating from Washington, a horrific failure of intelligence. Yep, that was what I was going to say. Uh, I mean, look, let's be perfectly honest. If we unpack the history of Afghanistan, uh, this was written long before we even walked in there. I mean, let's just go through the list of people that have been, been kicked out of Afghanistan. Of course, there was Alexander. He was kicked out. In fact, great quote from Alexander, may God keep you away from the venom of the cobra, the teeth of the tiger and the revenge of the Afghans. Then there were the Scythians, then the Kushans, the Arabs, the Mongols, the Mughals. They actually held it for quite a while because they bribed everyone. And then the Brits, of course. The Brits blew it. And there's a really good quote from Winston Churchill, which I think makes a lot of sense. The, the, I'll do it. I'll do it the full way. The push, Pashtun <clears throat> tribes are always engaged in private or public war. Every man is a warrior, a politician, and a theologian. Every large house is a feudal fortress. Every family <laughs> cultivates its vendetta. Every clan its feud. Nothing is ever forgotten, and very few debts are ever left unpaid. <laughs> That was Winnie. Um, Right, so the Brits blew it, then the Russians, now the United States. And us, we were involved, so we blew it as well. It's got a history. It's called the Graveyard of Empires for a reason, folks. Yes, and I think um, what was forgotten in all of this, and we can touch on that, is the reason why uh, we went in in the first place. It seemed to kind of get muddied along the way, and we ended up spending 20 years fighting for democracy for a country that seemingly didn't really want it. So I think there are a lot of issues, but the, the the real one for me is why we went in in the first place. And that was because of Al-Qaeda. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no doubt that uh, in, in a place called Jalalabad, Osama bin Laden and his motley crew had planned a number of attacks around the world, including attacks on US embassies in East Africa, mm-hmm. the World Trade Center, and... Bajinka, an attack on airlines, airliners over the Pacific, and they had to be dealt with. But um, there did not seem to be a cohesive plan about how to go in, achieve that mission and get out. And that's how we ended up in this quagmire, mm-hmm. along with our allies, for, as Michelle said, 20, 20 years of blood, sweat and tears. My knees used to work before this war. Like when this war started, I had knees that worked and now they don't be, <laughs> just simply because of time. But, I mean, it, it is quite a feat. They did go in there, you know, based on the assumption that they wanted to get rid of al-Qaeda. It, it was a nest of terrorism, it, all the bad things that were happening. But then what ended up happening is like he, you know, screwed off to, <laughs> where did he go? To uh, just next door. About about in Pakistan. Yeah, Pakistan. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, we're left with a mission of, you know, kind of formulating some kind of democracy because there was no one really to take over and no one really liked the Taliban at that time. So I feel like it's very, for me particularly, um, the rhetoric around won't someone think of the women and the children, that 
I get that that's a really sad thing, but you know that is not why this war was started. And you know, if if you if you find that abhorrent, maybe look into what Saudi Arabia do, and maybe look into you know all the other countries that we seem to be okay with. So I just think if you're gonna if you're gonna take a stand on one thing, you kind of have to have a sweeping stand on all of the countries. So I think just really looking at the region and what it means now and if the Taliban are actually as bad as we think they are. Ooh, that's a... That, well, um, I, I think yeah, they I are and I, I'm not buying the presser that they did in the presidential palace where they promised that they've changed their ways because even if we go back to Frosty's intro, that's highly unlikely given the centuries of um, cultural shifts moving at uh, sort of glacial p- pace in that part of the world. And also they they just, the, the tribalism, and this is what a, the, the US completely failed to realise, I think, I think we, and in a sense we did as well, is we failed to comprehend or understand the Afghanistan culture. It's tribal, it's vengeful. Um, there's a great story about how when the Mongols were uh, trying to conquer Afghanistan, they had a siege on a city, that city during that siege, uh, the great grandson or grandson of Genghis Khan was killed. So they slaughtered everyone in that valley and then resettled it with Mongols, who took Tajik women as their wives. Now that is that that valley is now pretty much a Mongol valley. So it's got that Mongol kind of it's got their cultural shift compared to the Pashtuns. Now the Pashtuns run the country. They're the biggest ethnic majority and they're the ones that are allied to the Taliban. Now if they'd gone, if the Americans had addressed the Pashtuns and tried to bring them across, but instead of that they went for lots of little ethnic minorities that could never unite the country. And that's the problem. They're trying to unite a country that doesn't want to be no. united. It's, it's, all, it's like demo- democracy at gunpoint. Like it was yeah. never, ever going to work. And we, at some point we have to realise that not everyone reveres democracy. Not everyone wants to move in the direction of the Western world. Well, in my house, it's a benign dictatorship and we all bow to my <laughs> wife. She is absolutely correct every time. And that's fair. I think it is. And to your point, I mean, what happened when the uh, Americans and the coalition uh, drove the Taliban out the first time echoes what's just happened. It all happened in a rush. A deal was done with General Dustum and the Northern Mm -hmm. Alliance. Tribal warlords were given bags of silver um, and the Taliban collapsed. And it's just happened again, although, of course, on this occasion, in the favour of the Taliban. In the reverse, exactly. Because, I mean, but also America was saying the Taliban are going to take over. We know that as a fact. And it's going to take 90 days. It could, like one intelligence commentator said, in the next decade, we'll probably see the Taliban take over. And it was like within 10 days instead of 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of that was because the US, because Trump's government decided we're going to deal directly with the Taliban and they cut the Afghan government out. So as soon as that happens, no one's got any faith in the Afghan government. They're out. They're not a part of the picture anymore. They didn't get a seat at the table for the negotiations. It's Which is mind-boggling to me. And like... The reason why the Taliban is swept through so quickly, you've got this Afghan army that is literally getting slaughtered. They've been given American arms and they've been trained by Americans, but they're not getting paid. They're not getting paid at all. And so if you've got the Taliban coming through, you just want to live a life and Mm. do the best you can. You don't really care to stand up for a country that you don't even really know much about. You just want to live your life in your little village. So... 
it makes no – I don't understand why the Americans didn't think – I mean, apparently they spent something like $88 billion on the Afghan army, but where did that money go? Like you to weren't the paying the people. Yeah, but the, you weren't, you weren't paying the people. So at the end of the day, you're not going to have an army. You're not going to have people fighting for what? For some kind of idolised version of freedom? It's, it's just – there were so many mistakes here, I think. Well, I think that – I mean, the great example of the army, they were literally – they were going and inspecting – Troops. The Americans would go and check the Afghan army out and they'd find that half the weapons were either sold, completely sold yeah. off to the Taliban because these guys weren't getting paid. They were underfed. They weren't even feeding their troops to yeah. the point where, oh, well, there's no sights left on this sniper rifle because they've been sold to the Taliban. And this was the thing that happened was there was an army. That, that Afghanistan's rife with corruption. Now, here's the thing. How many people live in Afghanistan? Any guesses? Oh, I couldn't tell you. 39 million people live there. In a space that's not much bigger, I think, than Victoria, is it? That is insane. 39 million? Yeah, but don't, let's keep in mind, Australia is really flat, so we can mm. spread out. Where you know Afghanistan's very hilly. There's a lot more land than you'd think because it's it's you know because of its topography. There are a lot of people living in this country. We we probably thought there was. I mean, it's four and a half million people in Kabul. That's the size of Sydney mm. in an area about the size of like just the main sort of body of Sydney, the eastern suburbs and the mm. central Sydney. It's this right. They're packed in tight. That lies in in there lies tension. Well, you could tell us about this. Try keeping 800 people, uh, make them behave themselves in an Olympic village. I think we'll talk about that later. Thanks, Neil. <laughs> right? It's, it's, yeah. it's, a, a bo- it's a melting pot of different cultures, but it's also it's on the boil because it's just all of these cultures crashing into each other in one very tiny piece of real estate. Do we – I'm going to throw this question out to you, folk. Do you not think – I mean, okay, let's play devil's advocate. Maybe the Taliban have learned – over the last two decades that, you know, feudalism and all of all of the bad things that they were doing aren't going to work and maybe they genuinely want a seat at the table and maybe they want to form a coherent government. Is that a possibility? I think that they are very keen to get international legitimacy but I don't believe that they are capable of changing the underpinning credo that they exist on. They, of course, have got most of their finances in the last four or five years from opium sales, heroin sales. They have no compunction about supporting that trade to fill their coffers. Even as they were giving the press conference in the presidential palace claiming that they were going to be a legitimate government for all Afghanis, they had a delegation in Russia meeting with Vladimir Putin. And more bizarrely than anything else, I think, is President Xi Jinping of China has uh, offered the olive branch to them. And that's fundamentally because China has its eyes very firmly on the mineral sands, the um, anticipated or projected $3 billion of mineral sands that exist in Afghanistan, which would be really critical to Chinese technology industries and military sectors. That's what I was about to say. Um, Is China involved in this? And I just, I mean, that's just answered the question I was going to ask. Because funnily enough, Iran's meant to be quite closely allied to the Taliban through the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps because they, they can Absolutely. use Afghanistan as a proxy for um, exercise for operations overseas. Yep. This government, the Taliban government, I think is going to fall into the conga line of rogue states that continue to ignore the international rules order. And I fear, of course, for uh, the minorities that they have traditionally persecuted and also women 
And as we know, a, a lot of uh, the, the women that have graduated from universities in Kabul are burning their diplomas and degrees at the moment. Yeah. They do not want the Taliban to find that they are educated. And we've seen signs in other towns like Herat and Kandahar of Taliban squads going around house to house looking for people who worked with the government, looking for educated women who, in their eyes mind, are not adhering to the strict um, tenets of Sharia law. I don't think this is a a, a good uh, prospect at the moment at all, Michelle. No. I think um, we're on the verge of a massive humanitarian crisis. Well, I was just going to say, how do, like, what is the answer here? Like, they, they tried to fix it for 20 years and nothing worked. It's just, it's one of those things, it's like, we just can't fix it. No, and uh, the United Nations has put aside the princely sum of $11 million for humanitarian programs post the fall of the regime, which will be of no consequence to anyone. I think Angela Um, Merkel's also said that she's she's withholding something like $4 billion worth of aid that Germany was going to spirit to Afghanistan, but they've now held that back. But there was an interesting thing I was reading that... um, I mean, the heroin trade, for all those junkies out there, congratulations, heroin's about to be really, really cheap. But the other thing that they're getting money from is the borders, trade routes. They're using, they're basically, people are bribing them to get their material through the country. Yep. And I'm also concerned we're going to see a lot of arms trade because the Americans, not having a well-thought-through plan for the exit strategy, have left a billion or $2 billion of armaments, and not just small arms, but sophisticated weaponry behind which the Taliban is now playing with. So, like, that on its own, in terms of, like, an exit strategy, like, surely at some point someone said, hey, (laughs) we don't don't want the Taliban having access to this kind of stuff. Look, America has definitely lost their bond on Afghanistan. They're not getting Mm. their bond money back. The tribunal is not going to help them. Yeah. They left blue tack on uh, on the walls yeah. and they left tanks lying around. There are helicopters and tanks sitting there. I did love it's the insane. footage of the Taliban in a gymnasium on a US base and there was a guy on a on an elliptical using it backwards with this look on his face as if to say, "Why would you need this? There are hills everywhere." So, yeah, they they just they literally cut and run in the worst possible way. Yep. If you want a cheap Iroquois helicopter for cattle musters, I know where you're going. Yeah. Oh, well, there was another great thing is somebody said, how did t- the Taliban get to Kabul so quickly? And then there was a, a picture of just miles of four-wheel drives and Humvees sitting fallow where they were left. It's like the Americans are going, we don't need it, leave it, just dump it. And that's going to get sold on the black market. You know it. So why why yeah. didn't they just take this stuff with them? They would have, if they'd, if they'd really... They've had months to to come up with an exit strategy. Surely in that time, they could have really organised a few things. That sounds like a lot of common sense, (laughs) but (laughs) Michelle, there's no evidence that they've done it. It's, well, it's, it's just Uh, really bizarre. Like they've known this for months and, you know, I've, I've read things about where U.S. high-ranking U.S. officials have even like even said, you know, we, we we spoke about this. We we told the government this was going to happen, and it seems like no one was paying anyone any mind. Well, let's not forget one really important thing: logistically lifting up and carrying all that material is complicated. Um, and let's not forget one other thing: the last administration in the U.S. was not known for its planning. 
But even then, we've had 20 years. The Americans, you really shouldn't go into a war without an exit strategy, I think is the best way to look at it. And they did. They went in, found themselves in a quagmire and didn't know how to back out. And I think that's the real problem we've got here is Biden was locked into getting out by September 11. And he decided, no, let's just get everyone out now and be done with it. And, I mean, he's supported himself. He said, I'm, I'm quite happy with the result. It's, you know, I, I stand by my decision. Doesn't eliminate the fact that it's an utter shit fight in there right now. And um, we're going to be paying the price on this for a long time. So how how yeah. is it, Ferg, going to affect the global stage, so to speak? Well, I think it's uh, going to encourage greater instability in the Middle East. Mm. Uh, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, Iran has been struggling under international sanctions. Their, their um, monetary reserves have almost evaporated from $122 billion down to about $4 billion at the moment. Wow. And I can see them basically re-equipping their army and militia units and paramilitary units with the weaponry that's been left behind in Afghanistan. Mm. That'd be the first thing. And they are running proxy forces in northern Iraq and uh, into Syria. And, of course, feeding weaponry to Hamas in, in the Gaza Strip. So this, this flood of weaponry is really, really concerning. And, and I'm not being, I suppose, callous or indifferent to the fate of the Afghan population. But, frankly, at this point in time, there's not much the international community can do for them. We certainly don't have the processes and means to pump uh, humanitarian aid in there with any confidence that it will get to the people who, who it's aimed at and won't be siphoned off by the Taliban and the warlords. Yeah, well, that's always the problem is whatever money goes in winds up in the wrong pockets. It's not winding up in the average citizen's pocket. It's going into the administration. And I think that really well, is the, the, the crux of the matter is everyone – we've spent two and a half thousand years trying to work out what to do with Afghanistan and we still don't have a clear answer. So it's really good. it's really interesting because we talk about blowback and we've talked about it a lot in in regards to September 11th. So I really, which is that idea that you know the the world kind of uh, or pockets of the world kind of will get hit hard based on foreign policies that certain parts of the world have put on these these countries. I would imagine that we're going to see a lot of that off the back of the two decades of of Afghanistan. And I imagine this is going to be far-reaching. Yep. I think that's a pretty good analysis. Yep. And, and, you know, there's another subtext to all of this too, is our, our poor men and women who served our country so diligently there, this is a crushing psychological blow for mm. them. Um, and sitting there wondering and, you know, 40-something of their comrades never came back from that theatre, but also there were hundreds more that were wounded and traumatised. And also, don't forget the damage that's been done to our special forces because of the policies and the strategies that we used with them over there and how they basically became a corrupted yeah. force. You know, the, the whole thing of war crimes. We've, we've walked away with absolute... And I saw John Howard saying, no, this has been a complete success. He was on 7.30 the other night. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. you know, you can stick by your policy. We know you don't like saying sorry, but this has been nothing but a disaster, intelligence-wise no and militarily. And and yeah. at the end of the day, what was actually gained from it? What would you say? I mean, that, you've got – I mean, some would say, you know, there's there's a generation of women that got education, but, you know, that that's not really going to help them now. So no. what is it – was there any positives out of this? 
Well, it, it was the strike back against Al-Qaeda which had managed to evade Western, Western forces for a number of years. Uh, first of all, of course, uh, bin Laden didn't start in Jalalabad. He started in Sudan, sponsored and protected by a regime there. And when the heat got a bit strong for him, he then um, sought and received the protection of the Taliban to move to Afghanistan. So the, the fact is the world could not stand by and let bin Laden continue to spin his murderous uh, tricks. So that was dealt with. But uh, from there, Michelle, everything seemingly really did unravel due to a lack of uh, strong focused planning on what mission objectives were achievable, what wasn't achievable, and when it was time to move out and leave Af Afghanistan to the Afghans. I think the other thing um, that we all forget is the Taliban are almost, you could say, a product of CIA overreach because they, they were born out of the madrasas of the Pashtun region, uh, so both Pakistan and Afghanistan, they were recruit. They were using the CIA were using those madrasas to create the Mujahideen to fight the USSR. They armed them, they trained them, they set them up, and then they left them. Um, once the mm. the Russians left, there was a civil war. The Pashtuns and the Taliban took over, and now we're again we're still cleaning up this massive blowback. Yeah, so I guess it's it's the foreign policy, right, that always seems to, to get us. You, you know, we, we go in and, you know, these countries might be saying, you know, we're, we're doing stuff for democracy or, or we're doing it to save these other countries. But at the end of the day, they, there really isn't any saviour here. There is nothing but creating more chaos. So do we just become, as governments, more localised and just <laughs> fuck everyone else? Like, what, I mean, what, what is the answer here? It's, it's just such a tough... Like, at what point... I don't think isolationism is the answer, but military adventurism is definitely not the answer. Yeah. And what we've, what we've seen throughout the history of mankind is violence begets violence. Yeah. You, you go into these areas, you get involved in a, in a bloody conflict, the victims and their progeny and um, their friends uh, grow up believing that violence is a solution and getting engaged in other activities which cause more more violence it's um a vicious circle there's there's no doubt about it yeah and it's definitely one that we have no answers to and the one thing that everyone seems to fail to remember is the afghanis have got nowhere to go and that's why they will fight to the bitter end yeah well they've got yeah. nowhere to go no one wants to take them it's, well, it's not just that. It's the ones that control the place. They will. I mean, the reason that the Afghanis and there was a great thing where someone said that a they have a fighting season. There is a season when you go to war in Afghanistan, and also you can change tribes as quickly as you can change your hat. So you're dealing with this intractable problem mm. um, that's sitting there right in the belly of Central Asia, and everyone uses it as a roadway. It's it's one of those those great moments of history that's just. Uh, again, it's been foretold and foretold and foretold, and here we are looking at the result yet again. Yeah. So, I look, I think we, we've pretty much unpacked as much as we probably can in half an hour. Do you have any last thoughts there, Ferg? Oh, I just hope and pray that we can get out the people, the Afghan people who worked with Australia yeah. over the last 20 years, and some of the politicians talk about the ADF interpreters. Well, yeah, sure, they, they're key, but don't forget... Everybody who worked in our embassy, from the gardeners to the guards to the reception ladies, their lives are forfeit in the views of the Taliban, yep. and they and their families hopefully will get out, will be evacuated in the next couple of days. 
Yeah, again, it's one of those things where you could have done this earlier, but we didn't. And here we are. Uh, also, I mean, the sad thing is we, we we brought home, we evacuated like something like 26 on a plane that we could have fit far more on too. I don't yep. understand that. Yep. <laughs> uh, a number of people who were supposed to get on that flight were prevented from getting into the right. airfield by Taliban checkpoints. Yeah. And women and children in particular. Yeah had no opportunity to get through the chaos to get to the yep. place. So, so much for the amnesty that was promised. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Ferg. It's always great to have you. Hopefully yep. your your forced isolation ends soon. Yeah, we hope you don't snap in the next five days. Don't no. escape. Don't escape. You. You're only yeah. escaping to Brisbane, which is a great city. The windows don't open, so I've got the sheets tied together, but I can't oh. put them out. Oh. I can't, I can't even imagine. But at least, you know, once you're out, you get to enjoy the fruits of your, your labour. We uh, aren't so lucky. So yep. <laughs> enjoy that. Yes. Yeah, once Thanks you get for joining out, us, at least Ferg. you get to go to another lockdown. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Thanks Frosty. <laughs>